Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We've been in Exodus. I'm just going to take a moment and draw our reflections back to what it would be like to be a Hebrew in Egypt. What's happened so far in this book of Exodus? What would it be like to be one of these people? Imagine, if you will, someone, an Egyptian, taking your newborn son against your will to the Nile River and throwing that child into the waters. Imagine waking up every morning for hard labor, for a people that despise you. Imagine the difficulty of what it would be like to be in this book in this time where there's so much hurt and heartache bound up in this time period. See, historically, we've dealt with this question, right? It's, why does God let bad things happen? If there's an all-powerful God, how does he let suffering happen? And it really kind of, for our day, terminates into one of two answers. There's atheism, atheism, that makes a way, that's a good way to sound really stupid when you talk about atheism. Atheism is the belief that there is no God. And so some of us look suffering in the world, and we draw this conclusion, there cannot be a God, cannot be good. Second conclusion is agnosticism. There is a God, but he's so far removed from us that we can't really know who he is. And there's variations on the point. There's deism, God created the world and just let it go. There's all kinds of other things, but that's what we deal with now, right? This question of oh, how can God be good and let these horrible things happen? And, and now we're looking at this passage where these group of people have witnessed horrific things. What's their solace? What hope do they have? See, the presence of suffering leads some to believe in the absence of God. What we're going to see this morning is the exact opposite to be true. The presence of suffering makes us aware of the presence of God. Here's where I think we're headed this morning. God is powerfully present in the world to bring justice to his enemies and deliverance to his people. God is powerfully present in the world to bring justice to his enemies and deliverance to his people. You can just feel the weight of that sentence because I think what we're dealing with this morning is of the utmost seriousness. We're going to see this in three different plagues. Plague number four is that God afflicts Egypt with flies, but not Israel. Plague number five is that God afflicts Egypt's livestock, but not Israel's. Plague number six is God afflicts Egypt with boils, but not Israel. You get the point, right? That God is afflicting some and delivering others. And why? How? 
God is powerfully present in the world to bring justice to his enemies, salvation, deliverance to his people. I want to dive in this morning. We're going to get started. And I'm going to tell you right now, the first plague is going to be a lot longer than the last two plagues. So bear with me. We're going to get through it. But I think at the end, there's going to be a time for us to reflect on all of this and kind of make sense of it. So hang with me as we kind of get through the text and understand what the text is saying. And then we'll kind of unpack the meaning of all. Let's start with the first plague in chapter 8, 20, verses 20, or chapter 8, verses 20 through 32, God afflicts Egypt with flies. Look there with me at chapter 8, verse 20. It's on page 50 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. And tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. Or excuse me, throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. I want to just take a moment and kind of skip this process. So if we go back and it's on the the PowerPoint in front of us, Anthony's going to pull it up. There's this cycle of plagues. And here we are, we're in the fourth plague. But what happens is in each of these plagues, there's a formula given to us in the text. And it kind of clues us in that the same wording is used time and time again. And so it starts off with this direction from the Lord to Moses. And so we see in chapter 820 and verse 9, or chapter 9, verses 1 and 8, this phrase, the Lord said to Moses. And then it follows up with an action. And particularly in 8.24 and in 9.5, in this section of plagues, the Lord did so. That's the phrase, or the Lord did this thing. And so there's this phrase there. And then finally, it concludes with this phase of hardening. And we see this in 8.31 and 9.7 and in 9.12, that Pharaoh hardened his heart, or God hardened Pharaoh's heart, or Pharaoh's heart was hardened, some kind of... uh, mode or form of this phrase is happening. And so as we look at plagues four, five, and six, we're going to see this cycle play over and over again. Now, the way we interpret this is the the little variations to this formula draw our attention to the particular meanings of what Moses is recording for us in these plagues. So this is kind of a nerdy way to say this is how we're going about this process, right? I want you to kind of be tuned in that these are the phrases. So it starts here in in plague number four in chapter eight and 20 through 32, uh, the Lord directs Moses in verse 20. It's a command given to Pharaoh. As God speaks to Moses, he gives a command directly to Pharaoh, let my people go. Does that sound familiar? It should, right? All the way back to chapter 5, verse 1, this has been Moses' speech to Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And so it's kind of been stated time and time again. 
Now we see in verse 20 that Moses is to rise up early in the morning so that he can meet Pharaoh there. Apparently Pharaoh had this rhythm where he would get up early and go out to the Nile River or go out to the waters, and Moses was to meet him there and to speak these words. It's exactly like the first plague and the fourth plague and the seventh plague. And the Lord tells Moses exactly what to say. Let my people go that they may serve me. His message is clear. It's been present there. And then he lists a consequence. Look at verse 21. He says, or else, right? That's like a, a four-year-old threatening you, right? They lift up their hands, or else. Maybe it's a little stronger than that. But he says it. He says, or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses. Just when we thought the gnats were bad, now we've got bigger gnats, right? You've got these flies flying everywhere, and these flies are to come everywhere in the land of Egypt, into Pharaoh's house, into his servants' houses, into the houses of Egypt all around, but not into the people of Israel or the land of Goshen in verses 22 through 23. See, Moses is given a clarification. Israel will not be affected. See, this is that difference that we were talking about. Uh, As we've kind of talked about this formula, this is different, and it's a a kind of a point of emphasis. Verse 22 says, on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. Goshen was that land in Genesis where the Israelites settled down in because they can shepherd there. Egyptians thought shepherds were gross and weird. And so they kept them off in some far, far part of their country, and that's what is happening. They were there in the land of Goshen. The flies would not come to Goshen where the Israelites lived. In fact, the word that God uses here in verse 22, set apart, it's important. As we go through the remaining plagues that happen, God is going to consistently tell Pharaoh that he's going to set apart his people. He'll do this in chapter 9, verse 4, we'll see it, when he's going to strike the livestock of the Egyptians, but he'll set apart the Israelites. He's going to do it again in chapter 11 when he says, I'm going to strike down all the firstborn of Egypt, but I'll set apart the firstborn of the Israelites. Also notice what he says in verse 23. It says, thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Here's what's fascinating to me. Admittedly, I don't know Hebrew very well, but this Hebrew word for division is used four times in the Old Testament. All three other usages are translated redeemed or redemption. And so technically what what God might be saying here is, I will put a redemption between my people and your people. I'm going to redeem Israel. I'm going to set them apart so that they're not like you. Finally, this is of utmost importance. Notice what God says in verse 22. He gives us the purpose. He says there, he says, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. You know, we we saw two weeks ago, we saw that the plagues one through three gave us a particular lesson about God. See, God is kind of introducing himself to Pharaoh, right? In chapter five, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? And so God's giving him an education, as it were. And in plagues one through three, he's saying, I am Yahweh. I'm the self-existent one. There's no one like me. 
And in plagues four through six, this little phrasing is going to play itself out time and time again. God is not just the self-existent one. that the, There's no one like him. He is the self-existent one who dwells in the midst of the earth. And he's here. He's not some God that's far off and absent from you. He's present. He's right here. Pharaoh, you've got to listen in because I'm not just some God off in this other astral plane that like your gods are. I'm here. I'm present with my people. He was unique in comparison to the gods of Egypt, but different from the gods of Egypt. He's right here, right now with his people. In fact, he's so involved that he won't let his people face the negative outcomes of these wonder plagues that we've talked about. And so what happens, verse 24, the Lord does exactly what he says he would do. That's what he says, the Lord did so. Swarms of flies fill every nook and cranny in all of Egypt, but there can't be a fly found in the land of Goshen. Now look at what happens next. This is fascinating because yet again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, but Pharaoh wants to negotiate with Moses about the command of God. Look at verse 25. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, no, it would not be right for us to do so for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells me, or tells us, excuse me. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh, let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and did not let the people go. Notice Pharaoh trying to compromise with this sovereign God who dwells in the midst of his people. Pharaoh wants Moses and the Israelites to make sacrifices to God in the land of Egypt. Remember, God's been pretty consistent about asking for this three days journey thing, right? goes all the way back to chapter 3, verse 18, 5, 3, 7, 16. He's asking for this consistently. And not only that, God has consistently told Pharaoh of the, what the Israelites were to sacrifice in the wilderness. Excuse me, that the Israelites were to sacrifice in the wilderness. But here, Pharaoh wants to change the terms. And if we're not careful, we might miss what this is. Who gets to determine the terms of Israel's worship? Is it God or is it Pharaoh? Who's going to be in charge here? This is a clash of two beings who think of themselves as God, yet only one actually is. Notice Moses' diplomatic response. No, no, no. 
this isn't going to go well. That's what he's saying there in verses 26. He says, uh, Moses highlights that this just wouldn't be right. Look at what he says in verse 26. He says, I would not, it would not be right to do so for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we were to go back into Genesis, there's this account where, where Joseph is interacting. Joseph and Jacob are interacting with the Egyptians when they come down into the land. And there's a couple different places that the word abomination is used. Joseph is about to eat with his brothers, and the text tells us that he could not eat with his brothers because it was an abomination for an Egyptian to eat with an Israelite. Later on in chapter 46 of Genesis, we, we see that uh, anybody who was a shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And so these people are just naturally offensive to these Egyptians. They are shepherds who are Israelites, and, and they're just always kind of butting heads culturally with these Egyptian people. And so now we find out that Israel's sacrifices are an abomination to the Egyptians. It fits, right? They don't like shepherds. They don't like uh, Israelites. And so these sacrifices that these shepherds are going to do of sheep and cows are going to be offensive to them. In fact, Moses is so concerned about it that he thinks that his Israelite friends will be stoned because of the offense to them. It's interesting to note that Pharaoh never disagrees with him. Secondly, though, and more importantly, look at what he says in verse 27. He says, we must go three days journey into the wilderness. Remember, those are the two things that, that Pharaoh wanted to change. Don't go away. Stay here. We want to go three days journey into the wilderness. Why? And sacrifice to the Lord. Why? Because our God has uh, to, to uh, sacrifice to the Lord as our God has told us. There's a sense of obedience that Moses is devoted to. It's about what God has told him to do. Moses is making it clear that Israel must go to the wilderness, as God has said. Staying in Egypt to make uh, sacrifices is a non-starter. Because God dwells in the earth, obedience to his word is of the utmost importance. So Pharaoh makes this empty promise. Says Israel can go, but they can't go too far. And by the way, I need you to plead for me. There's a quid pro quo here, isn't there? Well, I'll let you go, kind of, but you need to plead for me. Pharaoh's trying to control the terms. Again, you must not go very far away. Who knows what very far means, right? I don't know. More importantly, Pharaoh asks Moses to plead for him again. This is exactly what he did in chapter 8, verse 8. He asked Moses to plead for him so that uh, the plague would go away, and now he's doing it again. And it's exactly what happens in verses 29 through 32. Uh, Moses pleads for him. The flies go away. And, and even though Moses warned him not to cheat again, that's exactly what happens in verse 32. Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. And once again, whether it's by his own doing or the Lord's sovereign hand, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, it's calcified yet again. We kind of step away from this for a second. We see that if God is present in the earth, as he says he is, it's of the utmost important that we obey. If God is present in the earth, Man must dwell with God on God's terms. 
And notice this little interaction that's happening here. Pharaoh doesn't get to dictate the term of Israel's obedience to God. In fact, this is kind of the pattern that's happening throughout these plagues uh, as, as Pharaoh's interacting with Moses. Is he wants to negotiate the terms on which Israel would leave. Here in verse 25, he argues that uh, Israel can sacrifice in the land of Egypt. In chapter 9, verse 27, he kind of confesses that he sinned. Uh, in chapter 10, verse 8, Pharaoh wants Israel to leave the children in Egypt. In chapter 10, verse 23, Pharaoh wants them to leave their livestock behind. And so he's constantly just kind of negotiating like a, a used car salesman, right? Like, no, I'll, I'll throw in this if you give me that. And I'll throw in this if you give me that. As Pharaoh's like just kind of negotiating as if he had terms or the upper hand with this sovereign almighty God. See, the truth is that God doesn't negotiate on his commands. We may be convinced that the Lord is one who, who bends his own rules, our culture's telling us all the time, he's not really going to send unrepentant sinners to hell. He's not really opposed to the proud. He's not really, it's not really easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. See, we are convinced that God is grading on a curve, as it were. Remember in school, maybe you were the beneficiary of the curve or you were the one who set the curve. But there was that bell curve, and the person with the best grade uh, gave his best effort to every other student that was involved. So if you had a 55 and, and the best person in the class missed five points, you got an extra five points. You still failed, but you got a 55 rather than the 50 you deserved. I think that's failing anyway. We are convinced that God grades on a curve, that he takes the best of us, and he attributes to us that might just be on the edge, just gives us a little bit extra so that we can kind of get this passing grade because God is ultimately a God of grace and mercy. And he is that, but not in that way. See, we're convinced that we're in the middle of the pack, that we're not Adolf Hitler, but we're not really Mother Teresa. It's a bad example, but you get my point. We're here in the middle. We're not the worst, but we're not the best. And so we think we earn that spot in heaven because we're just not that bad. God doesn't negotiate his terms. In fact, what's really interesting, God will always be true to his word. And in this book of Exodus, what the tension is, is how does this holy God who gives us the law in Exodus 20, how does he dwell with sinful people who keep failing him? See, the thing you realize is that nobody sets the curve. All of us fail. And when we set ourselves against those 10 commandments that are coming down the line in Exodus chapter 20, all of us will have fallen short of all 10 of those commands. So what are we to do? Put that thought on hold for a second. We have two more plagues to get through. So hang with me here. Let's look at plague number five, Exodus chapter nine, verses one through seven. God afflicts Egypt's livestock, but not Israel's. Look at verse one of chapter nine. The Lord said to Moses, 
Go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Simple enough equation, right? The Lord directs Moses. There's a command, let my people go. Let my people go that they may serve me in verse 1. Chapter 1, Pharaoh made the Israelites' lives hard with service. That's the language out of chapter 1. But God told Moses that the Israelites would serve him. But Pharaoh restates his claim in 5.18 that he wants them to do work without straw. And then in chapters 7 and 8 and 9, the Lord is constantly demanding that the people would be let go to serve him. See, what we have here is a conflict about who Israel will serve. Which God are they going to serve? Is it going to be Pharaoh? Are they going to submit to this hard, chastising labor? Or will they be set free to go serve the Lord God on Mount Sinai like God told Moses in chapter 3? And so there's this conflict that happens. And what happens then is after this warning, uh, God gives this statement that he's going to bring a plague on the livestock of Egypt in verses 2 and 3. There's this consequence that's coming. It's like a parent that you see like at the grocery store. You do that one more time, there's going to be consequences. And then there's never consequences. God's not that way, is he? God tells Pharaoh that if he still holds Israel, in verse 2, there will be these consequences. Look what he says, the, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague on your livestock that are in the field, on the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, the flocks. And notice that the, the severity of these flag, plagues keep increasing. So it starts off with a Nile River that makes life inconvenient. And then there's these frogs that make life gross and these gnats that make you annoyed. And then there's flies that make you even more annoyed. But now something's going to die. It's not me yet, but something close to me is going to die. Something on which I rely for sustenance. Once again, it's these wonder plagues that God is putting in front of these people. It's just like slowly turning up the heat slowly turning up the intensity, saying, I'm here, I'm present, you've got to listen to me. So verses 6 and 7, this is exactly what the Lord does. The Lord, as verse 6 says, the Lord did this thing. Notice that that Pharaoh's even checking on God's work in verse 7. He's sending representatives to go look at the land of Goshen to see if Israel's livestock actually died or not. And there's not a dead animal. Moshe the mule was still alive and well. Methuselah the cow was still giving milk, right? Like they're still alive and well. The death only came to those who were opposed to God and his purpose. But still the result doesn't change in verse 7. 
There's a cause and effect, right? Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he does not let the people go. Plays out again in plague number six in verses eight through 12. Look at verse eight with me. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Once again, God directs Moses. They are to take handfuls of soot from the kiln, same kiln that made the bricks that were such a controversy in chapter five. It's like God's just putting his finger in that point and saying, you're guilty of oppressing my people. And the soot's going to turn to boils. He's Plagues grow from inconvenience to more serious inconveniences to eventually painful afflictions and death. So Moses does what God says. So it turns to boils. And it happens, verse 11 tells us, only to the Egyptians. In fact, the magicians who have kind of been uh, mimicking the Uh, the wonder plagues that Moses and Aaron have been performing, they can't even get out of bed. They're so afflicted by what God has done. The result in verse 12 is the same. Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he doesn't listen. I might step back for a second and say, "How how do we understand this? Once again, it's this formula that led us to the meaning of these plagues and wonders. Plague number four, God emphasizes that he's in the midst of the earth in chapter 8, verse 22, that God is present in the world. He's not like the gods of Egypt that exist in some other plane of reality. He's here and he's present. In fact, plagues four through six make explicit that God wouldn't touch the Israelites with the same plagues that he brought upon the Egyptians. In chapter 8, verse 22 and 23, he promises not to let flies go to Goshen where the Israelites live. In chapter 9, verse 4, he's going to make a distinction so that the plague brought to the livestock will not affect the Israelites' livestock. And in chapters 9, 9 verse 11, fitting number, 911, the boils come only on the Egyptians. See, the upshot is this. God is present in the world to differentiate between those who are his people and those who stand opposed to him. God's presence in the world differentiates between those who are submitted to his purpose and those who are not. God's presence in the world means justice for men. I don't know if you've thought about this. We don't talk about this today in the world of Christianity as much as we should. But someday, those who stand opposed to God's work will be judged. 
Exodus 7 through 11 shows a series of plagues that are increasingly directed toward these Egyptians and ultimately to Pharaoh himself. And as Pharaoh becomes more and more opposed to God, his heart is continually more and more hardened. The plagues become more and more severe. God is handing them over to more and more hardship as they are hardened before God. It reminds us, as the New Testament quotes from the Proverbs in two different occasions, uh, James and Peter both quote this proverb. They say that God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to the proud. If sin is lawlessness, it's this obstinance to being under the authority of God. It's this, I'm going to cart and uh, kind of carve out my own way, as it were, this lawlessness that Pride is, is the essence of this sin. It's this devotion to self-rule. I've been thinking a lot about this recently, that Jesus is returning to give each person according to his deeds. Matthew 16 says this. Listen to this. We've heard this. It says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And he says, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay each according to what he has done. Jesus Christ will return to this earth in the heavens, visible to the world in such a way that he's going to repay every individual that has ever existed for his deeds done in righteousness or in rebellion. That's what Jesus is promising. Jesus will repay each according to what he's done. And there is no bell curve. The creator of everything, the righteous son of God, who sees all and hears all and knows everything, will hang all of our actions in the balance of his righteous justice. And he will declare a verdict on every soul to ever have walked the face of the earth. This is why it's so important for us to see that God is right here, right now, because he sees, because he knows. He's not absent from us like this God that's far off that doesn't care. He's right here. And he sees you and he knows you. He judges. So the question we need to ask right now is, what's the difference? What's the difference between an Egyptian and an Israelite? Why does one receive mercy and one receive justice? And the answer hidden inside of our text, I think, is that the Israelites are redeemed. What's that word, redeemed? It means bought back. It's like you'd go to the market and you would hand over something of value to receive something. You would redeem that thing, right? It's hidden in our text in chapter 8, verse 23. Look there for a second. We drew it out just very briefly, but he says this, thus I will put a division, a redemption between my people and your people. And then he goes on, and Moses and and Pharaoh start arguing about this concept of sacrifices, right? 
sacrifices that are meant to pay for sins that are, are directly tied to Israel's disobedience. So they're supposed to do this in obedience. Now, here's the thing. As Hebrews tells us, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So, so why are these sacrifices? It's, it would be the blood of Jesus that uh, we would have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, right? These sacrifices that are made are supposed to draw our attention to this coming sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And all of those thousands or millions of Old Testament sacrifice, all the blood spilled, all the bodies burned on the altar, all of those things were meant to point to this massive reality that the Son of God would become our true redemption, that he would buy us back from our sinfulness so that we might no longer face the wrath of God. In that 2 Corinthians 5, that sweet verse 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sins, Jesus, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He takes our sin upon Christ. He puts it upon the shoulders of his beloved son, and he gives us the righteousness of Jesus. And instead, that's how God's people are objects of mercy and not objects of wrath. It's good news, isn't it? This is God's grace given to us. God would delineate between recipients of wrath and recipients of mercy solely on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. If God is in the midst of his people, I think he is. This isn't just an Old Testament promise for people way back in Exodus chapter 7 and 8. Christian, this is true of you right now. Isn't that what we saw last week in Matthew 28? Jesus said, lo, I am with you always. Christian, if you're in Christ, Jesus is present with you in his spirit. I think it has particular bearing on this issue of wrongs done. Maybe you're like me, and you just feel the weight of this world. And I, I, I turn on the news, I read the articles, I see it on TV, and we just feel the weight of every single thing that comes down the line. And my response so often is to be angry. Just to be angry, to be vengeful. You ever feel like that? You hear of this news story, this thing happened, and you just get mad Your politician says this, your celebrity says that, and all of a sudden it just becomes very clear that your worldview is not aligned with their worldview. You just get angry. I want to put up three passages in our time remaining. Oh, boy. That promise God's justice to those who oppose the righteous. Think about this. This is New Testament promises where God promises justice to his righteous servants. Philippians chapter 1, Paul's in prison. He says this. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ 
so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Be true to the gospel in the midst of these pressures. Don't give up. Don't give in. Be true. Be strong. Be faithful. Verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their what? Of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. Christian, when you remain faithful, those that oppose the gospel, those that hinder you, those that oppose you, they feel the weight of that condemnation. They know destruction is coming. It's not just here. Let me give you another one from First Thess- 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul's talking about these Thessalonians' persecution. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to replay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. All saying, hey, you're experiencing persecution, you're experiencing affliction. This is happening because of your righteousness, and it's a confirmation of your genuine faith, but also of God's coming justice. One more passage, Romans chapter 12. Paul says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that That's the wrong verse. Excuse me. This is what it says. It might not be on the screen. This is why I'm a PowerPoint master. I always forget to do the right thing. Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Paul says, hey, vengeance belongs to God. It's not yours. You might be angry in your heart. You might be upset by this unrighteousness, this wickedness that's surrounding you, these things that are happening. Vengeance doesn't belong to you. See, we're not to be vengeful toward our world. We are to trust that God will bring justice in his time. We talk all the time about these culture wars, about what's happening as if we had some kind of uh, significant role in them. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will repay. John Piper highlights three different kinds of suffering. I think they're worth noting this morning. There's sickness and infirmity. It's its own kind of suffering, right? You have cancer. You go through a prolonged sickness, whatever it might look like. Even the short-term sickness that you take on, those are are kind of suffering. There's another kind of suffering that's done in service to others. You deny yourself. You uh, you, uh, 
live with less. You go to the missionary field. It's a kind of uh, intentional suffering in service to other people. But he notes this third kind of suffering that's caused by persecution. I recognize that some of us this morning have faced various kinds of persecution. We, we think of persecution kind of in uh, the, the historic sense of people who died, they were martyred. Truth be told, there's some of us that suffer persecution in our own houses. Others oppose the gospel. They, they mock our faith. There's others of us, of us who, who go to work and we receive ridicule for our openness about our belief. Some of you in high school, you share your faith in Jesus and you receive mocking back in return. Truth is, Christian, there is a God in your midst. There's a God in your midst and he controls every atom in this universe. When, when that God said in Genesis chapter 1, let there be stars in the heavens, 50 billion galaxies were created. And in six days, he created all of creation with what, 30 different words that he uses? That's the God who dwells with you and in you. Christian, there is a lion in your corner. There is an all-powerful God who's there in your midst that is fighting for you. You don't have to be vengeful. You don't have to take up the cause to bring suffering. You don't have to repay evil for evil. Right? And I got to tell you, every time you turn on the news channel on your TV, it's like every talking head on the TV wants to tell you how to be mad. And every podcast you flip on that has to do with the political realities here in the United States of America, they want to tell you how to be mad and how to be angry. And I'm telling you, there is a God who will bring justice. You don't have to. This morning, I woke up. And I checked my news feed, which was a stupid thing to do. I saw some political person defending some left-wing reality. It's like my heart rate elevated. Bad. I don't want to talk about specifically what they were defending. But that was my response to that sinfulness. In that moment, I needed to be reminded that vengeance belongs to God. I can I can respond with a holy anger. It's rare, but I can do that. Paul tells me, he says, in your anger, do not sin. Ephesians chapter 4, don't let the sun go down on your anger. It's a way for me to be so in tune with the righteousness and holiness of God that I can have a holy anger in my response. But guess what? Vengeance is never mine. It's why we can say abortion is wrong. But the moment somebody bombs an abortion clinic, they're not righteous. Vengeance belongs to God. Amen? See, the truth is, if the Lord is with us and he's in our midst, 
We don't have to retaliate. Jesus makes a statement in Matthew 5. And he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. Which, by the way, it comes from these books of the law, right? It's lex talionis law. It's eye for an eye. It's retribution. But now in Christ, there's the law of Christ. He says, he says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, if somebody slaps you on your right cheek, you're supposed to offer them your left If somebody wants your tunic, you're supposed to give them your cloak. And if they want you to go one mile, you go with them too. See, the new orientation of the gospel says, I'm not to stand up for my rights all the time. I'm to lay down my rights because Jesus will bring his vengeance in due time. He's brought me eternal grace and I don't need everything I think I need. The Lord is with us in our midst. We don't have to retaliate. Let's be those who trust in God's good salvation to his people and trust in his good vengeance that will come in due time. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us a wholehearted trust. I pray that you would make us men and women who long for your coming. Lord, give us a right sense what it is to trust in your vengeance. Give us a good sense of how you will save us. Lord, allow us to be those who trust and delight in you. Pray these things in Jesus' name.